All right. While they head out there and get uh, get squared away, we're gonna be we're gonna be in the book of Luke. We'll get to sing some more this morning, but uh, that is always such a blessing for us to be able to to watch that, to participate in that. Love having all these kids up here. Uh, love the ones that love to be up here, and love the ones that don't too. Those are fun too. So, uh, Luke chapter one is where we're gonna be. Looking forward to our first ever kind of full-scale Christmas program tonight. Reminder, that'll be at 5 o'clock. Parents, be here at 445. Uh, I hope you'll come and be a part of that evening. It should be, uh, should be fun. If you weren't here last week, and I know many of you were, many of you were not, Thanksgiving weekend, we introduced a new series. Uh, it's a series that's going to carry us through uh, Christmas, but also a series that's going to carry us through most of 2023. We'll be uh, in the book of Luke, and the series is called Jesus for Everyone. Luke is my favorite of the four Gospels. I am so excited to finally be able to preach through uh, this Gospel and kind of dive into this book with you. And in this, this uh, Gospel, I think you're, you're going to see a picture of Jesus through the eyes of those that walked with him, through the eyes of those that were around him. You're going to see those that he walked with, that he talked with, that he ministered to. And you're going to see and hear what it was like to be with Jesus in those days. John's gospel is a deeply personal gospel. If you walk through the gospel of John, most of the gospel of John takes, takes place over the course of just uh, a week or so. And it's very personal. You see this very intimate, personal picture of Jesus as a man. Matthew's gospel is focused on kind of the interplay of the kingdom of God uh, and, and Israel and, and the Gentiles and almost kind of a handbook of understanding the Old Testament integrated with the New Testament. Mark's gospel is a little bit of a just the facts kind of a gospel. Let's just give you the, the, the facts of everything that you need to know about him. It's the shortest of the Gospels, but then when we get to Luke, Luke's approach is a little bit different, and we'll talk more about this whenever we get to uh, January, but remember, Luke wasn't with Jesus. He wasn't one of the original disciples. He wasn't there listening to his teaching. He wasn't there uh, getting the, the kind of firsthand, one-on-one personal encounters that some of these other guys were. Uh, he, he wasn't one of those guys. He got his information from others. We know that Luke was a doctor, he was a physician, and he kind of takes that analytical mind and he puts it to work in the way that he approaches this gospel. He relies on personal interviews and reflections from those that Jesus ministered to. So we get to see Jesus through the eyes of those who who he, he was with and through those whose lives were changed by Jesus through those that were impacted by his work, those that experienced his healing, those that were moved by his teaching, that were changed by his resurrection. And as we're going to see this month in December, those that were were surprised by his birth. We get to see the, the kind of personal reflections of what it was like to know Jesus and to be around in those days. And so while, the, season, while the, the series overall is called Jesus for Everyone, for the next few weeks, we'll change it up just a little bit, and it's going to be Christmas for everyone. Christmas for everyone. So we move from Jesus for everyone to Christmas for everyone, because what you're going to see is that right from the word go is that the people of Luke introduce us to, uh, or that the, the, the work of, of Luke, the, the one that the people that Luke introduces us to are not exactly the who's who 
uh, in, in Israel at this time. What we're going to see right from the word go here with the Christmas story is that it's a group of outcasts, of sick and hurting people, of forgotten and dismissed people. People like women and fishermen and lepers and tax collectors. In the Christmas story alone, we'll see widows and a woman in shame because she had had no children, a pregnant teenager, shepherds, old forgotten men, even a couple of out-of-the-way towns that, that really didn't have much going for them. The Christmas story really is kind of Luke's gospel in miniature. It does show us the work of Luke, in, or the, the, the work of the, the entire book of Luke in just a couple of chapters. So I'm excited to jump into all of this with you. Now, all the verses in the Bible are equally authoritative. All the verses carry equal weight and authority. They're all worthy of reading and reflecting on. But some verses just hit a little bit different. Case in point is Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. It's right in the middle of, uh, of an explanation about the, 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 the prophecy of Jesus' birth. And it says this, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. I've preached here at Providence for 12 years now. This is my 12th Christmas uh, series that I have done. And four of those 12 have come directly, of those series have come directly from this verse. In, in 2017, 19, 21, and 22, uh, we, did, we did a series called Fear Not. We did a series called Come Behold. Another one last year that was about the joy, the good news of great joy phrase that is in there. And now this year it is all the people. I didn't mean to do that. I have no idea how that kind of worked out that way. It just kind of happened. Uh, but here we are, and I kind of love how this has played out. Four series based off of one verse is a little bit, uh, a little bit crazy, but I've been excited about all of those, and I'm just as excited uh, about this one. My theory is that this verse is right smack in the middle of Luke's uh, explanation to Charlie Brown about what Christmas is all about, and somehow that got like lodged in my brain whenever I was a kid. And so uh, for me, this is what Christmas is all about, and different parts of these verses have stuck out to me over the years, and this is, uh, I, I think this is how we, we got here with all of these different ones. And you can go back and listen to all of those series uh, on our website. You can go back and listen to all the different ways that we talked about uh, each of those different phrases. And so we'll come back to the very beginning of Luke in January. Uh, but for now, we're going to start where Luke starts the story of Jesus by telling us a story about somebody else completely. That's how he starts the story of Jesus. Uh, and with that, we'll actually start by not even looking at the book of Luke, but at the very end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. So if you want to go over a few, uh, a few pages to Matthew and then just keep going a little bit, you'll get to Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." Those are the very last words of the prophets of Israel before there would be over 400 years of silence from God. The time that we know is the time between the Testaments. Uh, but at the time, they didn't know that that's what that was. They didn't know what was going on. All they know is that, that, that Malachi gave this prophecy about Elijah to come, and then everything went 
silent. A promise that Elijah would return, and when he returned, it was ahead of this great and awesome day of the Lord. A phrase used to illustrate judgment, a phrase used to illustrate kind of an outpouring of punishment from God. But before that day comes, Elijah would come first. And in those two verses right there in Malachi, there is an entire world of theological and philosophical debate and meaning, a lot that we could spend a long time talking about. But for us, because we have the Gospels, specifically even Luke's Gospel, we understand those verses to be pointing to two things. Those verses are doing something that we've talked about before when we studied the prophets. It's, it's this uh, thing called prophetic foreshortening, which sounds like super compli- complicated, but really what it means is uh, when a, a prophet in the Old Testament would predict something coming in the future, oftentimes in, in the same verse, in the same sentence, they would, they would, they would prophesy about something that was going to happen uh, at this point in time, and then they would also prophesy about something that was going to happen way distant in the future. But the way that we see it, whenever those things line up, it looks like those things are together. Right, So this is like looking at a mountain range, right? You look at a mountain range, and from what you can see, it looks like you have the horizon across from you, and all these mountains are equal distance away. But the closer that you get to those mountains, you realize that even though it looks like everything's the same, there's actually quite a bit of distance between these two mountain peaks, right? And, and this is the way that the prophets work oftentimes. You can see this all throughout the Old Testament, where they will talk about things that are going to happen in the future, and they may be talking about a few hundred years in the future, or they may be talking about well into the future, but they don't, they don't distinguish those things for us. This is how prophecy works, and this is what happens here in Malachi. It's, it's, it's where he, he, he says, here's some things that are going to happen in the future, and it's going to happen this way. Elijah's going to come, and then there will be this great and awesome day of the Lord. But he doesn't distinguish when exactly those things are going to come, except that Elijah comes first, and this judgment day will come later. And as we'll see from Luke, the promise of Elijah is about to be fulfilled. It's about to be fulfilled right here in these days in the Christmas story. But the coming day of judgment, well, for that we are still waiting. We'll talk about that later in the book of Luke. But regardless of how you understand uh, the gospel today, Jew or Christian, the verse at the end of the book of Malachi means two things for us. These verses at the end of Malachi mean two things. One is hope, and two, it means a whole lot of waiting. Hope in that while God may have gone silent in his speaking, he has left Israel with a promise. He has left them with a promise that they are not forgotten, that even though he's gone silent, that there is something more to come. He hasn't left them. He hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't walked away from them. Someone else would be coming to testify to God's faithfulness and rescue God's people. And because of that promise, God has not left them alone. He has not left them without hope, but instead he gives them hope. So hope and a promise is a beautiful thing, but 400 years is a long time. It's a long time to hang on to a promise and to hang on to a hope. We're talking about almost double our country's lifespan. It's a long time to hold on to something. And after a while, you kind of start to ask questions like, did we misunderstand what was supposed to happen here? I thought Elijah was coming. Why is Elijah not here? Did we misunderstand or misread something? Did, 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 did God revoke his promise to us? Has, has he taken that away from us? Did God give up on us? 
Or maybe did we give up on God? You start asking questions like that because you have these promises that are put out there before you. You have these things that are there, but then you don't ever see them fulfilled. And it's natural to start asking questions when that day comes. It's natural to start asking questions whenever you've been given hope, but that hope is deferred and that hope never quite sees fulfillment. And these were the sort of questions that, that were being asked by the Jews then, that are still being asked by the Jews today. But they were already being asked in the first century. Rome had overtaken the country. Some rebellions had kind of sprung up in, in different places, some miraculous provisions, some great stories to tell. But all of it had kind of come to a halt when Rome had taken over Israel. And all that promise of the nation, the promise of the rebellions, all of it had amounted to basically nothing at this point. They were under the thumb of Rome. They were paying their taxes. They could only function under the authority of Rome. And it led to people asking questions like, how long, Lord? How long until you answer this promise that you left us with in Malachi? How long until you do this? It was a frustrating, embarrassing, disappointing, and less than hopeful existence. And that's the setting of Luke chapter 1. That's where the Christmas story picks up. So let's read it together. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in Years. So we're told a lot here in just these few verses. Just a couple of verses here, we are told a lot. First, we're told of Herod, the Roman puppet king that was controlling and ruling Israel, so far from, from what Israel thought that they deserved and what they thought they would be, so far from what they were promised. So we see that in these verses. But we also meet Zechariah. Zechariah is going to be the focus of our story this morning. He is a priest. And that tells us that while some may have been questioning and wondering if God had left them, Zechariah was not one of those. Zechariah very much was still on board with all of the promises. It says he was righteous and walked blameless before the Lord. Doesn't mean he was perfect. Doesn't mean that he didn't get anything wrong, but that he was a man that sought God, that his life reflected the God of Israel and the hope that he still held. And then we meet Elizabeth, his wife who is also righteous and devout. These were the good guys of the story. These are the good guys of, of that day. These were the ones that still held faith. They were the ones that everyone points to and says, that is a good, devout Jew. This is what it looks like to worship and trust God in the first century. But we also find out two other things. One, they have no children. They have no real chance of having children because they're old. These are two very important parts of this story. In a culture, in a time where having no children meant that you were being punished by God for something that you had done, it didn't come with shared grief or sorrow from others, but a shame and a judgment from others. So you look at this couple, and this couple had quite literally spent their entire lives, professional life in the case of Zechariah, but also their spiritual physical and emotional lives, they spent doing one thing, waiting. Just waiting. 
Zechariah in the service as a priest was waiting for the fulfillment of what had been prophesied all throughout the Old Testament, but right there at the end of Malachi that this Elijah would one day come looking for it, devout, never giving up faith, never wavering in faith. He was simply waiting. And then the couple together and Elizabeth waiting for a child. And at this point, they were old. Their prospects of having a child had completely passed them by at this point. And so maybe the waiting had kind of subsided, and you just wonder what the waiting had turned into, what the emotion that had brought in on them. But what we know is that whatever that waiting produced in them, they they never stopped trusting God. They never stopped with their faith in God. They were righteous, and they were devout. Their entire lives had been built around this one idea of waiting. Maybe waiting and hoping, if you want to put a second, second thing in there, but waiting and hoping. And never once, with any, with, with any hint of those longings that they were waiting to see uh, come to fruition before their eyes, never once did they get a single hint that they would ever see any of those things fulfilled. They were old enough that they were convinced they would never see one of those fulfilled. They would never have a child. No inkling that God was listening. No light at the end of the tunnel. Plenty of evidence that God was not only uh, not listening, but that he was not, if he was listening, he wasn't inclined to act on their behalf. You have to wonder if their hope hadn't started to fade. Not to say that their faith had started to fade, but their hope had started to fade just a little bit. And so now with all of that context, you have a sense of of where Zechariah and Elizabeth were and why what happens next is such a big deal to our story. Verse 8, chapter 1, verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So Zechariah was chosen randomly to do this priestly duty. One that his division uh, only did twice a year. So his division of Abijah, they only did this two times a year. Twice a year they would do this. And then from hundreds of priests within his division, he was randomly chosen by, uh, by the casting of lots to be the one who would go in and serve in this capacity. If you'll remember uh, from our study in the book of Ruth this summer, which seems like 10 years ago at this point, but if you'll remember from our study in the book of Ruth, there, there, there is no, it just so happened that, that, that Ruth happened upon this field. There is no, it just so happened that Zechariah was chosen. God was at work in all of this. So he was cho- chosen to go and, and burn the incense, and this is, this is a, a task that was considered so high and holy that, that once a priest had been asked to serve in this, this capacity and to do this one thing, once a priest was asked to do this, then he would never be asked to do this, this task again. You only got to do it one time as a priest in your entire career. And Zechariah just so happened to be chosen at this moment for this task. So he dons the robes, he goes through all the ritualistic preparation and cleansing, uh, he readies his heart for the high moment of his priestly career. And that's where we get verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. 
But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. In this moment, when Zechariah is chosen for this very special task, an angel shows up. Later we learn this is the angel Gabriel and tells him, Zechariah, your waiting is over. Can you imagine the emotion that he must have felt in that moment? A man who had spent his entire life waiting. In this moment, he's met by an angel who says, all of that waiting that you've been doing, Zechariah, it's about to come to an end. You will finally get the baby that you and Elizabeth have been longing for. Your heart's ache will be fulfilled. Your prayer will be answered. And for the first time in his life, Zechariah has real evidence that God has not forgotten him and his wife. He has real evidence that God is out there and he is listening. The hoping and the waiting is over. It has all paid off. But the angel doesn't stop there. The angel keeps going. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the, the, to the, to the Lord their God and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready For the Lord, a people prepared. Wow. Echoes of the end of the book of Malachi. So not only has Zechariah's personal waiting for a son been met with this great news, so too is his waiting for a Messiah, for the Elijah that was to come. Now, it wasn't Elijah himself, but it would be his son, Zechariah's own son, that would fulfill the role of Elijah. John would now live with the spirit and the power of Elijah. There is no greater compliment, there is no greater honor that you could bestow upon someone. Elijah was held in such great regard and such great honor. And so when the angel comes, he brings this great news. Not only will you have a son, but that son will be the promised one that that Malachi told you would come. He will serve in the spirit of Elijah. The two things Zechariah has waited for for his entire life, the two things his entire life has been built around, this hope and waiting for all of his life, in one moment is met in one child to see all of this fulfilled. This must have been borderline unbelievable for Zechariah to hear. And in fact, it turns out that's exactly what it was. Look in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Such a beautiful story that we're given there. And Zechariah had not given up hope. 
But whenever he got this news, that this thing he had been waiting for his entire life, when he got this news, it was just too much for him to take at face value. It was just too much for him to hold on to, to say, are you for real right now? Is this really going to happen? Angel, vision, or not, he needed some sort of idea, some sort of proof that this was going to happen. Turns out the proof that he got is the angel said, okay, well, then you're just not going to talk for a little while. You can't do anything and maybe not even be able to hear as well. He goes silent and maybe his whole world goes silent. Always makes me wonder how he, how, when he went home, how did he tell Elizabeth about this? He couldn't just be like, you never guess what's going to happen or what happened today at work. He can't go home and have that conversation with her. How did he communicate to her what he had seen? He couldn't just kind of pull out like a, uh, you know, some loose leaf paper and write down with his, 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 his big pen. He can't say, this is what happened. So did he, like, did he write this, or did, did he have to play the most difficult game of charades ever with Elizabeth whenever he came home? Like, how do you convince your wife who's been without child for so long, who'd given up waiting and hoping, how do you say, hey, here's what I saw today, and you're going to be pregnant, you're going to have a child? I can't imagine how he pulled that off. That had to be a difficult conversation. But he goes home, he explains this to her, uh, and, and, and he says, hey, this is what's about to happen. And for Elizabeth, this meant that not only was her waiting over, but so was her shame and her reproach. She could have a son, and not just any son, a miraculous one that would more than vindicate her in the eyes of her community. And not only that, a son that would have the ministry and the power and the spirit of Elijah. He was the one to come. Sort of. Zechariah will explain that here in just a minute. But the relief and the joy in Elizabeth's story is tangible. She is freed from her wishing, from her waiting, from her shame. She no longer worships with this longing in her heart and this nagging pain in her, in her, in her soul that she had been dealing with, but with a freedom that she had never known. She knows this is the one. And we'll talk about that a little bit more next week whenever she meets Mary after this great news. But for today, for the sake of time, I want to skip ahead. I want to talk about how this story ends in Luke chapter 1, verse 57. So skip ahead just a little bit in our story. We'll, we'll pick up on the middle pieces next week. But Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives are called by this name. And they made signs to his father. So basically, uh, Elizabeth says, No, 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 John's got to be his name. And they're like, That doesn't make any sense at all. Let's just ask Zechariah and make sure that this is what we need to do. Uh, because this just doesn't make any sense for this to be the case, uh, the, the case at all. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And he immediately, uh, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through the, through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, uh, saying, what then will this, will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. I can imagine that, that, little, that little thing right there whenever it says, uh, and fear came upon all the neighbors and all these things were talked about. 
and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. Luke uses that phrase quite a bit, especially here in these early chapters. And every time that I, that I see that, I think that that's probably Luke who has gone into the hill country to these people who were around in those days and interviewed them and talked to them and said, hey, what did you think whenever this happened? You remember whenever John went silent or whenever Zechariah went silent before John was born? Do you remember the, the circumstances around John's birth? What did you think about that? And it talks about how they stored them up in their hearts, how they pondered these things in their hearts. And they all wondered, what's this child going to be like? With a birth like this, with circumstances like this around his birth, what is this child John going to be like? The whole scene is so hopeful. It is so beautiful. I imagine that there are smiles and laughter all around as as Zechariah gets his voice back and starts just probably blabbering all kinds of stuff, trying to communicate all the things that he's thought about over the several, uh, the last few months trying to to communicate all the things that the angel had said. They knew what had to be done. They knew his name needed to be John. And just like that, Zechariah is all uh, able to talk and he lets it all out. And I just can't imagine what all he'd been thinking. But we have at least a little bit of an idea of what he had been thinking during that time. And that's verse 67. It's called Zechariah's Benedictus. And this is where uh, he's filled with the Spirit And he comes out and he says so much of what's been on his heart during his silence for the last nine months. Verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in the darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in the spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. We'll pick up the story of John uh, a little bit later in uh, January. But but you see these words from Zechariah that, that we could pour over and spend so much time looking at these things. But you can see that, that even in these words, Zechariah, as much as he understands, as much as he gets, as much as he's able to, to process what all has happened, he still has a bit of a misconception about what's about to happen with his son John and with the Messiah that is to come. He's still focused on the kingdom of the here and now and being delivered from our enemies. And, and so much of his focus is on so, so, so many temporary things. But God is doing so many, so many things that are so outside the scope of what he can even imagine. And so his prophecy, as true as it is, it kind of, kind of misreads the situation just a little bit. And he, more than anyone, knows that God, he can trust God's promises. But even as he cries out, he doesn't quite understand all that is happening here. But he does know what his son is supposed to do. He knows John's role and he's ready to see him live it out. So this morning, we can celebrate with the new parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. We can feel their joy when they sing and when they pray. 
how they'd spent their whole life hoping and waiting only to be met with disappointment time and time and time again. And then all in one moment, they have their hopes and their dreams met in this child. There was no inclination that any kind of breakthrough was coming at all until that day whenever Zechariah saw that angel. This morning, whenever we say that Christmas is for everyone, especially what I want to say this morning is that, Chris, that Christmas is especially for those that are waiting, especially for those that are, that are in a place right now where they, they feel forgotten, especially for those that are in a place right now where they, they, they don't feel like there's a good path forward for them. Christmas is for everyone, not just those that, that show up and are ready to party and to celebrate all December long, but instead those that, 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 that wait in hope, even if that waiting is, is a bit of a somber and sorrowful one. I know so many of you are in a place of waiting this morning. Some of you feel that tension of hope and disappointment in your heart as you look at your circumstances some of you feel the urge to give up and to give out. Some of you are just tired of waiting. Zechariah and Elizabeth understand your grief and your struggle. They understand the power of waiting. And if we're honest this morning, we all feel that tension this morning in some way. It is part of what happens when you live in a temporary, broken world with hearts that are crafted for eternity in a relationship with God. We all feel the tension of waiting and hoping and feeling like nothing is happening. This is part of what we do whenever we celebrate Advent. You know, in our culture, it's impossible to get away from the Christmas season right now in the month of December. You know, I, I, I joke all the time about how I start Christmas music in November and about how uh, Christmas is a big celebration for us. And we, we all have our Christmas parties and we had our, our, our ladies Christmas party last night and there's so much Christmas stuff going around. We have all of our decorations and stuff. But by the traditional church calendar, this time of year uh, is, is, is considered Advent. And if you go to a highly liturgical church, so that means a church that's really kind of rooted in tradition and in form and those kind of things, there's no sign of Christmas at all during this time of year. What you'll see is a lot of pinks and purples like we have with our candles here. And those pinks and those purples represent two things. The pink represents joy, but the purple represents penance. It represents preparing our hearts for what is to come. And it's not until Christmas Day that you light the white candle, the Christ candle, in the middle. And there, you have 12 days of celebration that follow after that. That is the 12 days of Christmas. And that's impossible for us to get away from that. It's impossible for us to get away from all of Christmas around us. But if you can, for just a minute, kind of put yourself in that place where, where there is no celebration allowed for any of December where there's no celebration and, and the only thing that you can do is wait for what is to come on December 25th. All you can do is wait for the hope that is to come, that is to be met in Jesus Christ. All you can do is prepare your hearts in penance or in, in some measure of, of kind of re remembering how desperately you need Christ, how desperately you need Him to show up, how desperately, just, just like Zechariah desperately needed that message from that angel that day, you desperately need someone to come and intervene in the brokenness of your life. This is what Advent really is about. 
It's hard for us to convey that in this culture whenever everything is going on all around. Nobody, some of y'all will have your Christmas tree down by December, the, the night of December 25th. Some of you guys are like that. I think you're Grinches, but some of you all will have that and that'll be the case. Some of y'all are, I'm not going to say lazy, but you're a little more busy and you won't have it down until like February. And that's fine too. You, you keep the celebration going and you keep going. But listen, I know some of y'all will have it down by December 25th because you've spent the last, you know, four or five, six weeks all kind of in, in like full party mode. Really, that's the way that this is supposed to work is that we prepare our hearts now with longing and waiting and reminding ourselves of exactly where Zechariah and Elizabeth were. And listen, I would love to tell you this morning that just like Zechariah and Elizabeth had their longings and their waitings and, and all of these things fulfilled in, in their son, I would love to tell all of you that everything that you're longing for, everything that you're waiting for is just going to poof. You're going to see an angel and all will be well. You may have to be silent for nine months, but eventually all will be well. I would love to be able to tell you that. I cannot. I cannot because really the, what, what Christmas points to is that our hope is, is so much bigger than our limited temporary understanding of where we are right now. It is so much bigger than where we're at. And so just like Zechariah is kind of off in his prophecy, is, it's, it's good as far as it goes, but it doesn't quite understand what all is about to happen because it's still focused on the here and now. But what Advent should do for us, what Christmas should do for us, is it should draw our hearts, it should draw our minds to something so much bigger, so much stronger, so much more than just having our hopes and our longings fulfilled here. So while our hopes and our longings may be for like a new, like, I don't know, like some new AirPods or something, maybe, maybe it's for, for like a, a new game system, maybe you've got a hope and a longing to get this perfect gift, or maybe your, your hope and your longing is something bigger. Man, you just want to be able to live life. You just want to be able to know where your next paycheck is coming from. You just want to be able to not have to deal with doctors. You, want to just, you, you just want to be able to not have to deal with a, a marriage that is frustrating and falling apart. You just, you're just waiting and hoping for the day where you can smile again. Man, I don't know where that day is. I don't know where that day comes. But what I do know is the promise of Christmas, the promise of Advent, is that waiting will eventually come to an end. And when it does come to an end, it comes to an end in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you can know Him, and you can know the power of that hope today. Now, when does that eventually come to an end? When can we eventually celebrate Christ? It's not, it's not fully going to be in this life. It's not fully going to be today and in this moment. But that doesn't mean that it can't at least somewhat be. And so the evidence of the Old Testament, of the prophecies of Isaiah and Malachi, and, and, and the fulfillment now in Luke, the evidence there is that God has not forgotten. And that there will be a day when your waiting and your longing will be over. There is evidence for us that tells us that is true. We have more evidence to know that than Zechariah even did. And now we can, we can trust that God will do that for us as well. And so my prayer for you is that you will experience in this season even some measure of hope that maybe is, is starting to flag a little bit, that maybe is starting to kind of falter just a little bit, that maybe in the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth you can say, no, God is true to his promises. God will do what he has promised. He has not forgotten. 
And you can hold fast to that. You can hold true to that. And you can know God is still here. God is with us. That is the story of Christmas. That is the hope that we cling to. That is what Advent is about, teaching us to wait and to want and to hope for something so much bigger than the temporary stuff of this world, than whatever's under a tree or whatever else you may want. It's not saying that any of those things that you wait for and that you hope for are wrong. There's so many good things to wait for and to hope for. All I'm saying is that if what you're waiting for and what you're hoping for is tied to this earth and this earth alone, there's so much more that is promised to us. And I want to encourage you to take hold of that in this Christmas season, to spend time, spend time in, in repentance, in prayer, in, 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 in training your heart to long for something and then to wait for that thing. There's so much to be learned whenever God teaches you how to wait, whenever God teaches you the patience and all that comes with depending on him, where you say, I can't make this happen. I need God to show up right now. There's so much that we are taught there. And so Christmas is for those that are waiting and longing and pleading with God that feel forgotten, left out, or maybe just plain worn out. If that's you this morning, you can begrudge God for his timing. Or you can look back on the Christmas story and the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and remember that God's timing is always just in time and celebrate that always 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 god remembers his people and he will not leave us or forsake us will you pray with me father this morning i I do not want to put platitudes and cliches on top of suffering and pain i imagine that if if zechariah and elizabeth were here before they had had that news from, uh, before they had had that news from that angel, and they were to hear this message, they they would probably say, "Yeah, that's that's probably true. I just I just I just wish I could see something that that convinced me it was true." And so I don't want to I don't want to pretend that that the the devout and the faithful are always in this place where they just get it right all the time. Father, I don't want to pretend and and put cliches on top of real pain and real hurt and real frustration. But Father, I don't want to miss the story either that you have given us to teach us that you have not forgotten us. That Christmas very much is for those that feel forgotten, that feel left out. Those that long to see and to know the promise that you have given us. So Father, I pray this morning for everyone in here that feels that tension. I pray that they would put their faith in you and they would trust you in this moment. And Father, for those in here this morning that don't feel that tension, that aren't waiting and longing for something greater, Father, I pray that you would prick their hearts You would draw their hearts and their minds to something so much bigger than anything this world can give them. That they would long for something so much, so far outside this world that they know this world can't fulfill it. A heart made for eternity that can only be matched by the God of eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.